And Exodus comes after Genesis. We finished up with Genesis last week. Genesis is eight key signs, four events and then four people. There is the creation and then the fall, a flood of all the world, and then nations. And then God brings his salvation through a family. And that family uh, father, the patriarch is Abraham, all the stars, and that son is Isaac. The son of Isaac is Jacob. The son of Jacob that, remember, is Joseph. Joseph, we found last week, finds himself in Egypt. And at the end of the book, it says that 72 Hebrews are now moving to Egypt so that they might be, in a sense, quarantined so that they might become a nation like God promised Abraham. When you turn the page and find yourself at the beginning of the book of Exodus, it's 400 years later. And now there's two to three million Hebrews living there and all as well as they live in Goshen. But there's an ominous sentence that, take, that happens in chapter 1, verse 8, where it says, And there arose a Pharaoh who knew not of Joseph. And he said to his leaders, Look at these Hebrews. They are becoming more and mightier than we are. We need to enslave them so that we might control them. And Exodus is like the book says. It's time to exit. And in that Exodus, there's introductions Rather, a real formal introduction to God, Yahweh. If you saw the movie The Patriot, it was 20 years ago. That hurt when I looked that up. 20 years ago. (laughs) Mel Gibson plays Benjamin Martin. He is a calm and quiet gentleman farmer. He lives in South Carolina. It's the, the, the time is 1776. And the various states are joining to fight a war of independence against Britain. And, ben, and Benjamin Martin wants nothing to do with this war. His pacifism angers his family. His desire to just stay out of this and watch it pass makes his, particularly his two eldest sons, embarrassed. And then South Carolina does join the, 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 you know, the battle for independence, their war with Britain. And his eldest son, Gabriel, is first to sign up. He volunteers without his father's permission. And soon after that, he's captured, and and he's captured by introduction of a new character. The evil character in this story is Colonel Tavington. And Tavington will be used to show us what kind of man Benjamin Martin is. He's captured his eldest son. He's going to take him to trial so that he might be hung as a traitor. All of this is taking place in the front yard of Benjamin Martin with his large family standing on the steps of their house. The second-born son won't have this. He charges the, the colonel, and the colonel shoots him in the heart in front of everyone. And that boy dies in the arms of Benjamin Martin. They burn the house down and take the eldest son away. And with that moment, something changes in Benjamin Martin. He runs into a burning house, goes under and finds a footlocker full of weapons that the family never knew he had, comes back down and starts barking out orders in ways that the family had never seen him, grabs some of the older boys and takes them with him, and he says this, aim small, miss small. And in a period of about seven minutes, he takes out an entire British battalion and saves his oldest son. The boys are shocked. This is not the father they knew. In this event and the events that continue, in the progression of the revelation of this movie, we find that Benjamin Martin is 
a notorious, famously uh, fear-filled person, or rather fear-striking person. He is, he gets a reputation. His name is the ghost. He is a genius in the field of combat. His heroism is breathtaking. He ends up being the turning point of the war itself. He's a hero. Tavington was used to bring that out so that we might see that this man was more than a mild rancher or a good father and a, a, a bad furniture maker. You know, His family knew him as daddy, but they never knew his father. They didn't know the real Benjamin Martin and all that he could be. When you look at the book of Exodus, you need to see that's what's taking place there. There is an anti-hero in this one. It's Pharaoh. And God is using Pharaoh to introduce himself to creation in a whole new way. He's going to introduce himself as Yahweh. He needs Pharaoh to be part of that introduction. And it starts with a condescending question from Pharaoh. When Moses addresses Pharaoh about Yahweh's desire for his people, he says this, and Pharaoh said, who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know Yahweh, and besides, I will not let Israel go. So here's the story of Exodus. Here's the theme. And God said to Moses, I am Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, Yahweh, I did not make myself fully known to them. They just knew me as God Almighty. I'm rolling this out. This is who I really am. I'm going to use this introduction. I'm going to use Pharaoh so that everybody knows who I am. Therefore, say to the Israelites that I am Yahweh, and I will bring you out from underneath the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. I will redeem you. First time this word redemption is used in, in the Bible story. Uh, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with the mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out from underneath the yoke of the Egyptians. This is our learning point for the day. Who is Yahweh, and why should you obey his voice? That's the point. And when you listen through and you study the ten plagues that's taking place in Genesis or Exodus 1 through 13, you'll see that's... That's what he's trying to communicate, not just to the Egyptians, not just to the Hebrews, but to all of mankind and to you and to me. You have to know when you read the book of Exodus, the context of what's taking place so that you can make sense out of these plagues. The, it, it's not just a war with Pharaoh or the Egyptians. It is about the gods of Egypt and their idols. It is about, it's, what's happening here is there's a war happening, and it's a spiritual war. And God's making sure that we can see it. We can see what's happening spiritually, but we can see it in the physical. And so all of these things are going to be displayed so that all the senses can appreciate the memory that God's making. And the memory that he's making is showing off his superior power as the creator and the designer of all things so that the people of faith, like you and me, could live in greater faith. But this is a spiritual war. And with that, who is Yahweh that I should obey him? Who is Yahweh that I should listen to his voice? That's the ringing of a bell. It's no holes barred from this point on, and the winner takes Israel. When you read through the, the plagues, you need to be watching or highlighting or listening for the ten times these plagues 
are introduced or concluded with, so that all of Israel would know that I am Yahweh. And then another six times it says, so that all of the Egyptians would know that I am Yahweh. And then multiple times, so that all of man will know that I am Yahweh. Who is Yahweh that I should obey him? Who is Yahweh that I should uh, listen to his voice? And this storyline continues, and it's going to come up again in Daniel or or, uh, Deuteronomy, and then Joshua is going to know about it, and so are all the people that Joshua is going to be going up against. Shows up in the kingdom period about 500 years later. Jeremiah quotes this epic of time because because of his being a prophet and says, look who Yahweh is. Keeps showing up all the time. He's wanting all the people of faith to know these stories so that they can have confidence in who is Yahweh. It's about the false gods of Egypt. Egypt is probably the most polytheistic uh, culture in, in the ancient Near East. And it wasn't just that they had many gods, but particularly in this story, it's important to know that Pharaoh is a god. He is the son of a god of, of some kind. In this case, he is more likely the son of the god of Ra, the god of light. And that's why the last plague is the plague of darkness. And it's not just about the rulership of the gods, but, but him himself. And as, as one of those gods, as Pharaoh, he doesn't just get to rule the people, but he's responsible for justice, peace, and prosperity. And that's why these plagues will be directed eventually towards him. Now, let's just pause <laughs> and not be, you know, not be looking back on history with an attitude of historical snobbery like those pagan people. We still have false gods and idols. Nietzsche, the atheist, says that there are more idols in the world than there are realities. Keller, uh, what's his, what's his real, Tim Keller, yeah, the famous pastor up in New York City, said the human heart is an idol factory. Listen to what he writes. We may not physically kneel down before a statue of Aphrodite, but many young women today are driven into depression or into eating disorders because they are obsessed with their concern for their body image. We may not actually burn incense to Artemis, but when money and career are raised uh, to cosmic proportions, we perform all kinds of child sacrifice and neglecting our family and or community, all to achieve a higher place in the business of wealth and prestige. The human heart takes good things like a successful career, love, material possessions, or even a family, and they turn them into ultimate things. Our hearts deify them as, and make them the center of our lives, and we think that we can find significance, security, and happiness ultimately in these things. We take good things, God-given things, and we turn them into ultimate things. When I was in my mid-30s, it, it just happened sometimes, and you don't know why or how it happened. But when I was in my mid-30s, I found myself having made an idol out of, I don't know if it's the American dream, but it was certainly a family dream, the Cassidy dream. And that was that I wanted my children to grow up and go to the same elementary school that would feed to the junior high, that would feed to the high school. I would like them to stay in one place for that time in their life. It might be because of a reaction. My, that was my experience. I enjoyed that. But prior to me getting here at four years old, uh, my father moved every two years, and, and I didn't want any part of that. And I liked what I had, and everybody should have that. And that's what happiness is. 
That's where stability is found. That's how I can be a good provider and protector from my family. And somewhere, somehow, that became more important in my walk with God. And I didn't know it until I started finding myself making compromises. And sometimes even overworking to the point where I physically damaged my body for life. And I was doing things and saying things because I didn't want to leave. It was time to leave. And it never occurred to me that I should look. And God had to step in because it was, it was literally destroying my body and soul. And it was pointed out to me that that was the case. And I had to release that idol. I had to let him slay that God in my life so I could be free. An idol is something that you must have to be happy. Uh, an easy symptom of an idol in your life would be when you lie. I mean, it's a, right, lying. Why would anyone lie ever? It shouldn't be that hard to tell the truth. But many times we tell the lie because we're trying to grab something that maybe we, we've turned into something more than it should be. Something good and it's become an ultimate thing. Like our reputation or other people's approval. I'll lie so that people will continue to approve of me. I'll lie so that I can retain or even gain some kind of power. I can lie to keep a few bucks so I can have financial advantage. Every time we compromise some kind of ethic and our soul says, what? Just keep in mind that you have some kind of priority that says you're willing to lie to make sure this must happen because you've turned that into an idol. And here's the secret to change in many people's lives. The secret to change is the ability to identify an idol or a, like a false God in your life and let God's spirit attack that. Let him go after it like a plague and dismantle it. And so you listen to what you fear. You've, you listen to your emotions when you, you think you might lose something, like in my case, that I have, would have to move. Oh no, why so panicked? Maybe it's more than it ought to be. Listen to when you're, yourself when you're condemning yourself, maybe over, overzealously because you didn't achieve a certain thing at a certain time or that person might be leaving you for some reason. Look at your energy levels. That's usually right. It's, it's you know, if you've got the little beach ball spinning in your mind and your soul because you're spending all kinds of emotional energy, time, or even financial resources, throwing it at this thing, it might be and maybe probably is an idol. It's a God, and it's a false God, and it has to be killed. That's what this story is about. This story is for you if you have an idol in your life, and I'd say we do. God is making a memory in this about his greatness so that we will put down or kill some idol in our life and become more faithful to who he is and what he's like. His name is Yahweh. Who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice? In Genesis, Exodus chapter 10, it says, when Yahweh said to Moses, go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of the officials so that I may perform these miraculous signs of mine among them, that you may tell your children and grandchildren and people at Grace Covenant Church right now how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians and how I performed my signs among them, and that you might know that I am Yahweh. 
that Israel would know, that Egypt would know, that all the world would know. I'm going to look very quickly at some of the ten plagues because I want to point out to you that's how God is doing that and, why, and how God is showing us his attributes in these plagues. The first plague is the plague of the Nile River. Now, you have to know that the Nile River, is, this, this plague itself serves as a nice template for what God's doing and how he's doing it. The Nile River is a high god in the world of the Egyptians. Plutarch said, it is the, the Nile River is the father and the savior of Egypt. There is nothing like the honor that the Egyptians give the Nile River. They say it is through the Nile River that the gods are birthed. As a matter of fact, it says uh, not just being the source of prosperity and of life, it is the center of devotion. It is, it is called in those times, the bloodstream of Osiris, one of the great gods, the bloodstream of Osiris. And God says, I can use that. Sure, let's do that. Let's make it a bloodstream. And so, so as the story goes, many of you know that, Aaron comes out and touches the, his rod into the Nile River and it turns to blood, meaning death. All things in the Nile River die. Now, the source of great life and prosperity for Egypt is now death. He's taking away their hope. He's destroyed a false god. Who is Yahweh that I should listen to his voice and obey that? Well, the, floor, the second plague, the frogs are flushed from the river. And now the, flaw, the second plague is this plague of frogs. The frogs are now coming. Keep in mind. These are goddesses. This, in this case, it's a goddess of fertility. And these frogs were considered by the farmers when they would sing and croak. It would be the song of prosperity. Friends, they are not liking this song. It is overplayed. It said they are overwhelmed with frogs. They are everywhere in every context. And they can't, they are goddesses. And so they can't, they can't harm them in any way. If you killed a frog, you could be killed. And so as the frogs are taking over Egypt, Pharaoh, on verse 8 of chapter 8, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, pray, pray to Yahweh to take these frogs away from me and my people, and I'll let the peop your, your people go and offer sacrifices to Yahweh. So Moses said to Pharaoh, okay, I'll leave you the honor of setting the time for me to pray for you and your officials and your people that you and your houses may be rid of these frogs except for those who remain in the Nile. And Pharaoh says, okay, tomorrow. God is mocking. Moses and Pharaoh, this is going on, he's mocking him. He's saying, okay, you had enough frogs? Sure. Okay. So why don't you just tell me? I'll, tell, you know, I'll, I'll let you make the appointment. I'll put it down in God's calendar. When? When do you want the frogs gone? Tomorrow. How about noon? Okay, we'll do that. And then verse 13 and 15, careful what you ask for. And Yahweh did what Moses asked, and the frogs died in the houses and in the courtyards and in the fields, and they were piled into heaps, and the land reeked of them. And the land reeked of them. Can you imagine in the front yard of every house is a 10-foot pile of dead frogs, and in the back, there's another 10-foot pile. On every street corner, there are piles of piles, 100 feet, okay? This is Egypt in the summer. 
How's that smelling? It reeked. Did you, anybody see um, 1917? Beautiful movie. You have to see that movie. It's a big screen movie. Uh, leave the kids at home. Uh, it, is, it is as much as you can take, uh, as many senses as you can take, of what World War I trench warfare must have looked like. And the only sense that they, they wanted to bring to us but couldn't was the sense of smell or rotting flesh. It is pungent. And so they do that with, with gnats flying, and, and there's a line in there, if you get lost, just, just follow the pungent stench back. That's how you'll find your way back. That's the smell here. And so it says, and then when Pharaoh saw that, that there was relief, he hardened his heart and would not listen to Moses or Aaron, just as Yahweh said it happened. And so gnats follow the death. And what follows gnats, but now flies. Flies are everywhere. And I want you to see things change a bit in the, in the plagues, in this fourth plague of flies, in that it says, uh, Moses, Yahweh says to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say this. Yahweh says this, let my people go that they might worship me. If you do not let my people go, I will send swarms of flies over you and all of your officials and your people into and all of your people and into your houses for the houses of Egypt will be full of flies, even the ground where they are. But look what he says. This is how it's different. He says, he says, but on that day, I will deal differently with the land of Goshen and where my people live. No swarms of flies will be there so that you will know that I, Yahweh, am in this land. I will make a distinction. There's the word redemption again between my people and your people. This miraculous sign will occur tomorrow. He's mocking them again. These flies, if you think they're the nuanced flies that are kind of trapped on your screens trying to get out, it's not that fly. It is Corpus Christi Northeast horse fly. Not the flies that land on you and bother you while you are eating. They're the ones that land on you and tear into you as they eat you. They are carnivorous. If you've been bit by one of these horse flies, you know it. You wish you were bit by a mosquito or maybe even a wasp. They tear your flesh, and that's what's happening. And they are everywhere all the time, except with the Israelis. And so if you can imagine, Pharaoh gets tired of this and calls Moses and Aaron back. And in that throne room where it's almost dense, hard to see through with all of these flies, picture this. Aaron and Moses just kind of going, not touched by a single fly, right? Like they, like they have off or some kind of repellent running through their circulatory system. And they just look at Pharaoh and his boys and they're slapping their welt uh, filled with maybe even infections. And they just say, what's up? <laughs> Heard you guys got a fly thing here. I don't know. It's good in Goshen. See the mockery? I mean, he's, he's calling them out. And so, and then Yahweh, Yahweh did this. The dense swarms of flies poured into Pharaoh's palace and into the house of his officials and throughout Egypt and the land. And they were ruined by the flies. Verse 25. And then Pharaoh summoned Moses and said, go sacrifice to your God in their land. Just get out of here. He, see how he's showing off? He's showing off to empower, to, he's introducing himself as Yahweh. Who is Yahweh that I should obey him? That's the question. Here's the answer. He is our creator. And if you if, see what's happening here is God, 
you know, causes the first um, plague to take place with the Nile River. And then he's just backing away and just letting nature take its course. Just lets chaos ensue. God designed, he builds, and maintains all of his creation. Designs, builds, and maintains. And when we say we want no part of God, this, this, this what's being on, on display here is fine. You step away from God, you step away from his protection of us in the second law of thermodynamics. We are approaching chaos much quicker than we had thought. He just lets, lets go. Why should we obey him? Because, because he knows the design of our bodies physically. He knows what's good for that. He knows the makeup of our emotional well-being. He knows the sociological gears that must take place to have a healthy society. He knows the spiritual laws. He wrote the spiritual laws. And so when God says, look, I need to be king, he doesn't say I am king and I should be king because I want to be in charge. I'm the boss. He's saying I'm I'm the king because I, you should trust in my wisdom. I'm your maker. I designed you. I made you. I maintain you. The laws of God, the decrees that we receive from him, friends, they're gifts. They are gifts. The first commandment, you, you, I am Yahweh. You shall have no other gods before me. Thank you, God. <laughs> Thanks for that help. This one right here, cut in the glass, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Why would he say that? Because it's true. <laughs> it's the only way that works. He's, he's trying to help us. He's trying to give us the answer key. And, and that's what he's showing in these, in these first few plagues. He, it's not like if, if, you, if you run from God and want nothing to do with him, who is Yahweh that I should obey him? It's not like he goes, boom, you get a car wreck. You get an ulcer. You, know? you get a divorce. That's not how it happens. He's saying this, you harvest what you plant. And if you say, my work is more important than my intimacy with God, it's, it's okay. You just made a step toward chaos. And when, God come, when, when your God becomes work, then you're going to overwork. And in that overworking, you're going to overworry. There's your chaos. There's your emotional chaos. You do that long enough, you'll have family chaos. There's your divorce. You continue long enough, you'll have physical chaos. There's your ulcer. He didn't do this to you. He tried to prevent it from happening. You should have no other gods before me. If you do, they'll destroy you. Idols destroy us. God gives us a decree. Forgive those who sin against you. We say, okay, but I'm justified. I'm holding on to, I want to see justice happen in my terms and in my time. He said, no, that's not, no, don't do this. I know the way your soul is made. And we, stay, we hold on to that, and guess what happens? We approach chaos. He doesn't give us a root canal for that, for rejecting his, his orders here. But what does happen is we come embittered. We get relational chaos. We certainly get relational chaos to that person. But what usually happens is we say, I'm never going to feel that sort of thing again. And we say, I'm going to be self-protected. I'm not going to let that happen again. And so we become, we come, become shorter in our grace with other people because we're holding on to this need for justification. 
But if you do what he says and give, and give forgiveness, whether people want it or not or earned it or not, then you find yourself freer. You become a forgiving person. You become <laughs> like God wants you to become. Our idols destroy us. And God alone completes us. And so God says, you shall have no other gods before me. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. It's medicine, friends. It is medicine for our body, souls, and spirit. It is, it is just pages torn out of the owner's manual for us. And we can see that in these plagues because God just says, here it is. This is what you want. You want chaos. It's coming your way. When a person is finally surrendered to the, the lordship of Yahweh, they are finally on their way to become fully alive. When Christ is king, you're living outside of chaos and you're approaching redemption. The second reason these, this storyline tells us who is Yahweh and why should I obey his voice is this, is that he is our savior and is looking forward to our repentance. He is our savior and is looking forward to our repentance. Watch this. It's easy to miss. The, ten, the seventh plague is the plague of hail. And this hailstorm, again, this is not just a natural sort of thing. It's a natural uh, uh, disaster, but it, it's not following just the chaos what's happening. He's going to add this, but watch what he's doing. He says, and then Yahweh said to Moses, now you get up early in the morning and go confront Pharaoh and say this to him. This is what Yahweh, the God of the Hebrew says, let my people go so that they might worship me. Or this time I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and against your people so that you may know that there is no one like me in all of the earth. But he doesn't do it suddenly. Look what he does. He, he delays this. And it's, this is the seventh plague, by the way. And so and this, verse 15 says, for by, now I could have, for by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with plague that would have wiped you off the face of the earth. But I have raised you up for this very purpose that I might show my powers and my name might be proclaimed in all of the earth. God is saying, look, this is the seventh plague and I, I could have done this in one. I mean, you, can you imagine writing this script if you were maybe in charge of this? Our client is Yahweh God. Great. What do you want to show? I want to show that I, I'm the creator, designer, creator, and the maintainer of all things. Great. Give me three minutes. That's all you'll need for this movie. Moses confronts Abraham, or I'm sorry, Moses confronts Pharaoh and says, uh, let my people go. Pharaoh says, who is Yahweh that I should obey him? Zing, zing. Both his two guys, pillars of salt. I'm not so sure I should obey him. Everybody breaks out in, you know, spontaneous combustion. Flame out. All right, Pharaoh, I'm counting down from five. I'm going to snap my finger, right? It's like a movie. I'm going to snap my finger, and every Egyptian will be dead. Four, three, two. Okay, go, go. That's it. whole thing takes three and a half minutes. That's what God could do. That's not what he wants to do. He's, he, he, he's being patient. Why would God be so patient? Why 10 plagues? Why does he do it this way? Bible memory verse, 2 Peter 3.9 says this, and the Lord is not slow about his promises, as some count as slowness, but patient towards you, you, me, not wishing for any to be perish, but all would come to repentance. He's going slow then like he goes slow now. 
He wants as many people to come to repentance as possible. Not just is he taking a long time with this, but he's actually giving them a warning. Why should we obey Yahweh? Because he is our Savior. He wants everybody to repent. Verse 18, he tells them, look, therefore, this time tomorrow I will send the worst hailstorm that has ever fallen upon Egypt, and that day will be found, uh, from that day it was founded until now. So he tells Pharaoh and his leaders, give an order to bring your livestock and everything you have in the field and place it under shelter because the hail will fall upon every man and animal that has not been brought in and is still out in the field, and they will die. And so look, some of the, the officials of Pharaoh who feared the word of Yahweh hurried and to bring in their slaves and their livestock inside. But those who ignored the word of Yahweh left their slaves and the livestock out in the field, and they died. God is saying in these plagues, he's saying, look, you don't have to suffer. What I'm trying to do is I'm going to show you that your rock bottom can be as far down as you want it to be. You don't have to go all the way down. Look at others that have gone down those paths before you and repent. These plagues, they're plagues of judgment, sure, but they're also plagues of, of you don't have to suffer. They're plagues of bringing people to a place where they will repent. He's not out to kill everyone. He's out to just tap them out and have them surrender so that they might enjoy making him their king. He did this so he could save all of the Hebrews. Sure, that says it. He did that to save the billions and billions of people over thousands of years that will know this story and say, you know what? Following Yahweh and listening to his voice is the easiest way to live. He did it to save these Egyptians. He, some of these Egyptians were saved. When you look at this passage and you wonder why, you know, who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice? It's because he's our savior. It is because he is looking forward to us repenting. He's making memories with all of his creation so that we would, showing off his power and his strength. He does that. That's like his pattern. He, like he, he makes these big productions so that we'll remember them about his power and his, and his desire to see us repent. Look at the crucifixion story, right? Jesus dies and then is raised again. Simple. It doesn't have to be as complicated as it is. The crucifixion itself, if all that is needed is the death of Jesus, and that's true, but look at the details. It takes about a whole day of torture for Jesus to endure this, and it's in public. And then he's in a parade where he's dragging his cross through Jerusalem, and then he's placed on this place where everyone can see him. And then he's, and then he's put into a tube, tomb where this giant stone is rolled in front of it, and the tomb has a guard in front of it, a Roman guard? Why all of that? He's showing off. He's just showing off so that all the people in part of that, so all the, all the believers at the time would go, wow, he, he didn't get over any death. He got, got over crucifixion from a tomb that was guarded by Romans. He did it so that the Romans that were part of this could say, oh, no, 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 I was there. He was dead. We put him in a we put him in a cave and sealed it. He did that, all that flexing, so that you and I could look back at that event and say, oh, it happened. He designed, makes, and maintains all of creation. And his, he, just, he just blew right through that in that. Yahweh, we knew him as God Almighty. He's saying, let me introduce you to my real name is Yahweh. How do you like me now? 
I am Yahweh. Obey my voice. And why wouldn't we? I'm almost out of time. I'm out of time. Let me, let me, real quick. Here's a fun thing that happens in this story. It's, it's kind of simple. Sometimes it's easy to miss. But what happens to Moses in this story? This is what happens when you experience living by faith. Moses starts the story with the plagues like this. This is in chapter 6, verse 28. And then when Yahweh spoke to Moses in Egypt, he said to him, I am Yahweh. Tell Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, everything I'm about to tell you. Here's Moses again, doing it again for like the fourth time now. And Moses said to Yahweh, since I speak, uh, since I speak with faltering lips, why would Pharaoh listen to me? That's how he starts. And God says, look, finally, you know what? I'll give your big brother Aaron as like training wheels. That's how this ministry of Moses starts. So the first three plagues, I think, are Aaron's rod, Aaron's rod, Aaron's rod. And then those middle plagues are, and then the hand of God did thus and such. The last four plagues, it says, and the hand of Moses did this. The last confrontation with Pharaoh. It's Moses and Pharaoh. And Pharaoh says, you get out of this town. I swear if I see you again, I'll kill you. And, Mo and Moses going, let's go. Let's go. That's how it ends. Something's happening in Moses' life. His faith grew by living the experience of doing the ministry God had for him. And yeah, he started off so scared he needed his big brother to come with him. And you know what? God's like, okay. But he, he lived through these plagues, these demonstrations of God's design and making and maintenance of all of creation. And in that, he just grew into this courageous lion that we know Moses to be. That's our story. It can be our story. I'm just the pastor, right? You guys are the... Yeah, God has a ministry for all of you. God put you here now for this very purpose, that you would know Yahweh and obey his voice. And so whether you're in, in the classroom, and I know it can be very scary in a classroom to stand up for God and feel like everybody's looking at you and laughing, maybe because they are, okay. Locker room or hallways, worse still. In the workplace, just to say these, this sentence, hey, maybe my wife and I could pray for you. I mean, you know, they could stop the clocks in there. But you know what? You do that. You start, off, you start off like a little kid, needing the training wheels. But here's the point in ministry is you've got to do it. If you do it, you see God do great big things. And then when you see God do great big things, you get a little bit bolder. And then you see him do great big things and a little bit bolder. Because God isn't changing. You are. You might have known him as God Almighty, but he's saying, I am Yahweh. Obey my voice. So, yeah, it seems like you're a little kid facing down a whole army. But what you're really doing is you're a little kid facing down an army and Yahweh is standing behind you. That's ministry. That's the pattern. But you have to practice. Your faith is, look at, look at Moses. Your faith is like a muscle. If you don't use it, you lose it. If you do use it, it gets stronger. It's like a, a, maybe a foreign language to you, right? If you don't use it, it goes away. If you're just like, oh, I'm going to trust God but not do anything. You have to trust God and do something. And in that doing something, God shows up and says, I am Yahweh. How do you like me now? This section of Exodus is the formal introduction to God Almighty. His name is Yahweh.
and he wants you to live the courageous life that Moses got to enjoy. He put on that spectacular display of power so that we would have a memory that is unforgettable, and we bring that memory into the ministry that God has given us here and now. Be encouraged. Yahweh is our God. Let's pray. Lord, I, uh, first, I'd like your spirit to help us understand maybe, maybe where we have an idol. Let's just start there. Something that we've made more important than you. Something we trust ourselves with and not you. Something good like a child or a career or ambition, whatever. But it started off from you and now... So, Lord, I'd ask that you would call that to, to our minds so that we might repent of that idol worship, that you might pry that away from us, that we might worship you as the only God because you are the only God. Lord, I'd ask that you would reveal yourself to us in our lives as we practice living by faith as ministers in this city. You are Yahweh. I'd ask, Lord, that you would give us this week a step of faith, so that we might see you as the designer and the maker and the maintainer of all things. Lord, let us be a people of courage, of compassion, of service, of truth. Who do you serve? We serve Yahweh. We listen to his voice and obey. It's the easiest thing to do. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everybody said...